Scripture reading this morning is Exodus chapter 34. We'll look at verses 1 through 9. We'll concentrate on verses 6 and 7, but that entire text is the context. And so Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up on the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. This is God's word. As I mentioned a little bit earlier this morning, we begin a little five-part series on biblical justice. This will take us through this month into the first Sunday in December. And from here on, when you hear me say biblical justice, think of flourishing and, recre- and, and reconciliation. So if, you, uh, if you're drawing this like a triangle and you put justice at the top, Uh, On one end of the triangle is flourishing, and on the other end of the triangle is reconciliation, and these three things uh, work together. That's what biblical justice is about. That's what it's for. It's for human flourishing. It's for reconciliation. We'll take various angles as we go on both over the next few Sundays. We could have... uh, started in a text that's familiar to a lot of us, Micah chapter 6 verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And so that idea of doing justly is repeated, amplified throughout scripture. We'll take uh, various angles as I, I said, but doing justly is always going to promote human flourishing Doing justly is going to support reconciliation, and reconciliation works two directions. It works from people to God, God reconciling us to himself, and then people to one another. Those two realities condense what justice is about, what justice is for. And so I want to put that out there in the very beginning in the interest of the message being heard. The message of biblical justice is about reconciliation and about flourishing. But we're going to start with this text. We're going to start with is rather than does. We're going to start with this text in Exodus because justice begins in the nature of God. You have to see that. This subject is just another subject. If we're not talking about something, 
that is part of the fiber, the character of God himself. Justice isn't just something God does, it is something God is. He introduced himself here in Exodus 34 and he does this elsewhere in scripture, not just here. This text is representative. But he introduced himself as the God of justice. That is the God that Moses worshipped. As verse 8 says, he quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped as God presents himself this way as a God of justice. Right after God announced, I am the God who does justly. This is the response. And for evangelical Christians, which is what we are, evangelical is on our, our name, First Evangelical Church, which, which means that there's a, a certain core center we have of biblical authority and certain doctrines that are really key for us and a, a certain way of relating to culture as a mission field and et cetera and so on. But as evangelical Christians, historically, where the Bible puts its emphasis is where we put our priorities. And so justice is a repeated emphasis biblically. It's in both testaments. And so my series is going to attempt to show us how and where. We begin here in Exodus this morning. Next Sunday we'll move to Psalm 146 so you get a flavor of the Psalms and justice. Then we'll go to the prophets the next Sunday. Then we'll go to Jesus' ministry the following Sunday and then that first Sunday in December as we wrap this up we'll uh, finish with the apostles and that will be our series. So historically, evangelicals have prioritized doing justly. Many evangelical organizations, we've mentioned a few even this morning, are dedicated to doing justly the world over. But we also find caution among evangelical Christians now, as evidenced by my inbox, <laughs> by how many people get riled and concerned and, and read in all kinds of things when social justice is the subject? And why is that? Why would social justice create such angst in us? I hope to show you in this series that there's a difference between social justice. Let's lowercase that. Small s, small j, social justice, which is really what biblical justice is involved in. There's a difference between that and capital S, capital J, social justice, which is a theory and an ideology, but we shouldn't throw out baby with bathwater. And yet many of us are overly suspicious of justice emphases, and, and we risk doing that very thing. We risk in our reaction to capital S, capital J, social justice, we, we risk throwing out baby with bathwater. And that would be a mistake, but Part of why this is, is because socially conservative evangelicalism has become moralistic, it's become therapeutic, and it's become nationalistic. Uh, and if we're spiritually formed by that trinity, if our faith is primarily about just Jesus and me, or Jesus keep me happy, warm and safe, or Jesus made in America, then our notion of justice is probably not biblically formed. It's probably formed more by pundits. It is the biblical emphasis on justice that is the very thing that keeps our faith from getting tangled up in individualism and moralism and nationalism and therapeutics. So we can use some help with this subject and I hope what I give comes across as help because no one is helped by shaming 
which is why a lot of secular approaches to doing justly fall flat. They depend on strong-arming people, shaming them on social media, shaming them in the streets. And strong-arming people, making them feel guilty, it doesn't change anyone from the inside out. It's not persuasive, it's coercive. And that's not how God works in his people. That's not how God works on his people. Not by coercion, by compulsion, through persuasion, through, through rendering the, the joy and the beauty of his own person and his attributes into something we want to respond to and be part of, we want to get in on. See, we, we, we have the Holy Spirit of God working in us. And, and let me just emphasize this. This gives us joy. I hope that a series on biblical justice will not ring sour, even as it confronts us with some areas where we need correction. Because justice in practice is joyful and it's beautiful, which stands to reason because justice is an attribute of God. It's a thing of beauty how all his attributes work together for his glory and, and our good. But when it comes to justice, while there is controversy and distrust and fear of social gospels and all that, justice is something God wants us to give ourselves to. And so we need to understand it. We need to understand it not as this grind out work, but for the joy this provides us, the joy in, in practice if not our joy, then his and others. He delights in his people doing justly. And we should want, as evangelical Christians, this is our heritage, our legacy, our birthright, is to get in on his joy. So with this in mind, let's meet again, each and all of us. Let's be reintroduced this morning to the God of Exodus 34, particularly in his stated concern for justice. We're starting our few Sundays of considerations of biblical justice, this biblical subject. We're starting with God himself. We're starting at God himself. Appearing in this cloud on Mount Sinai to Moses. I just, I was struck yesterday afternoon. I was sitting in one of the worship theaters of the South in Starkville. Uh, watching my favorite team, the visitor, taking on the chin again. And uh, as you're watching your team get beat, you're, you're distracted to other things uh, for, for the distraction. And, and where we were sitting, the sun uh, was setting and, and the clouds right above the stadium, pink, purple, orange. I mean, it was just lovely to watch. What was going on in the field, not as lovely to watch. What was going on in the clouds? Lovely to watch. I don't know what the color of the clouds were that descended on Mount Sinai. I imagine it was pretty colorful. And so as your imagination goes there to this cloud on Mount Sinai, Moses, God passing before Moses, saying his name, this is awesome. Verse 6, the Lord, the Lord. Stop right there because we need to understand that he is pronouncing his highest, holiest name. <clears throat> Yahweh. A lot of English versions try to, Jehovah was, was sort of a created word to uh, accomplish what Yahweh is, is getting at. But Yahweh was the name the scribes took special care to write. Can you imagine in copying the Old Testament, every time you came to Yahweh, you stopped what you were doing, you went and washed and you got a new pen and you came back, even if the next word was Yahweh, you did it over again. 
Yahweh is the core name of God. And only here, I think this is pretty cool. Only here in the entire Old Testament is God's core name repeated like this. And the repetition means pay attention. If, if I say to you, pay attention, you know what you, you know that I, I, want, I want you to get what I'm saying. And if I grab you by the collar, even more so. So this is not, verse 6, pay attention because I'm only going to say this once. No, in fact, it's pay attention because this is going to be amplified throughout biblical revelation. God repeats this about himself a variety of ways. But here the repetition is notable. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, only place in the entire Old Testament where you get Yahweh, Yahweh. And that's the core name of God. Pay attention to who I am. And this is in a context of reaffirming his covenant with his people who two chapters before this just magnificently blew it. You got the reference to the broken tablets. Two chapters before God gave uh, Moses the Ten Commandments on the tablets. We know the story and he comes down from the mountain and he finds the people worshiping the golden calf and all the stuff that goes with that kind of worship. And Moses breaks the tablets. And so in Exodus 34, God reaffirms the covenant. Make new tablets. We're going to do it again. Pay attention to who I am. We're going to focus on these two verses, verses 6 and 7, where he pronounces his name. And if we're just looking at the attributes of God that we find here, which is what name is about. Verse 5 says, the Lord descends on the cloud, stands with him there, and proclaims his name, the name of the Lord. And name is about attributes. And so as you look at verses 6 through 7, I count at least five. We've got mercy. We've got grace. We've got love. We've got faithfulness and justice as attributes of God. The Lord passed before him, verse 6, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What's the attributes? Just looking at the attributes, picking those out, what are they? You've got mercy, you've got grace, you've got love, you've got faithfulness, you've got justice. That's what verse 7 is. He's telling who, his, who he is in his justice. And his justice is described in verse 7 in terms of retribution and reconciliation. That'll be our two takeaways. Retribution and reconciliation. God's justice, justice as an attribute of God is where we're starting this morning. It's both retribution and reconciliation, both he holds the guilty accountable for their wrong. That's retribution. And he forgives the guilty, reconciliation. And you look at that and it feels like a contradiction on paper. Well, which is it? Does he punish the guilty or does he forgive them? It's both and. And here I remind you of Romans 3. Remember a couple years ago we looked at the book of Romans. We took five sections going through Romans. And Romans chapter 3 
You know this passage, all have sinned, Romans 3 says, and the all is each of us, all human beings who ever lived except for Jesus, who took our guilt to satisfy his own justice, Jesus being God. And that way, Romans 3, after saying that all of us are, are, are sinful and then saying what God has done for that very problem, then says, so this way God can be just and justifier. Through Jesus, God did what he announced to Moses he is. What he announced to Moses he does. One who is just and justifier. The echo of Exodus 34 goes all the way out to Romans 3. Romans 3 is the echo of Exodus 34. And Moses wouldn't get to see God be just and justifier as we have because Moses lived centuries before the cross. We live on this side of it and know how God can do this. But let's underscore it. Justice begins in the nature of God himself. Justice isn't something, it isn't just something God does. It is something God is. We start here when we go to unpacking what biblical justice is and does. Unpacking, let's, let's, let's analogize that. Think about packing a bag for a trip. So if justice is the bag, the biblical subject of justice, it has all this stuff packed into it. If you were packing a bag for a trip, what would you put in there? Mostly clothes. Maybe a change of shoes, depending on length of stay and activities. You'd put your, your uh, bathroom supplies, cosmetics. You'd put your phone charger in there, your toothbrush charger, if the case is that, maybe. Stuff like that. Maybe you're an overpacker. You put too much. Maybe you're a minimalist. I, I, uh, a friend of mine, I love this little story he tells. He was working in a national park one summer. It's one of my fraternity brothers. And he said the summer staff were all standing there uh, loading each other's luggage on a bus. And he turned to help this dreadlocked girl whom he said was beautiful. That's why he was trying to help. And uh, he wanted to help her get her bags on the bus. But she had only a knapsack slung over her shoulder. And he said, that's all you've got for the summer? And she goes, rock on. And then got on the bus, very nonchalant. I don't think he ever got a date. My point is, you pack stuff that you need to take a trip. And so likewise, justice is a, is a packed word. And it's, it's really packed, if, if you've got like a, I'm thinking of, of my particular bag at home, uh, a hard case, it's got kind of two sides when you open it up. And the two sides are flourishing and and reconciliation. This is, this is justice. And justice has packed into it, the Bible packs into justice as an attribute of God, which is then an action of his people. That's what we do with the attributes of God. We, we put them into practice so people can see who our God is. And so justice has packed into it what human beings need in order to flourish. That's the concern of biblical justice, which is things like we need the guilty to be held accountable for the wrongs they've committed. In other words, we, we need human actions to matter. It can't all be a wash. It can't, it, we don't want God to just grade on a big curve and, 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 and things in and it's like, eh, you know, nothing really mattered. That doesn't, that doesn't sit with us and there's a reason why it doesn't. So we need the guilty to be held accountable. We, we need the forgotten and the oppressed among us to to be remembered and to be liberated. We need the poor to be defended because biblically considered poverty is a state of being taken advantage of. 
On and on we could go, and we will in other sermons, just giving you an orientation here, but I want you to note, starting where we are, looking at Exodus 34, God says to Moses in announcing his name, here is what I am, here is what I do with myself. I am mercy, and I do mercy, and human flourishing follows. Reconciliation with God follows. Reconciliation with others follow. I am grace, and I do grace. And human flourishing follows. I am love and I do love and human flourishing follows. I am faithfulness and I do faithfulness. Generation after generation, human flourishing follows. And also, it's not an add-on, equal attribute, I am justice and I show justice, which means in this context, he holds the guilty to account, retribution, And also, it's a both and, he reconciles. Retribution and reconciliation are two takeaways. God, this is where we're starting our consideration of biblical justice. God's own biblical justice as the retribution from God and reconciliation to God. God can hold both of those things in his own person without contradiction. In messages to follow, we'll talk about reconciliation extending out. The people of God reconciled to him, and then what are we to do with that? What does our worship look like? Our worship looks like extending that reconciliation with him outward to others we share the world with. And the Bible even gives us, uh, even gives us more than once who those people are. Who specifically needs are doing justly. A a scholar named Nicholas uh, Wolterstorff calls them the quartet of the vulnerable. And he takes them out of uh, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 10, but they're all over Scripture. It's the widow, the quartet is the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. And so over and over again, Scripture says, God says through Scripture, these are the people that I personally identify with, and so you better treat them right. You better take them seriously and their plight and they're flourishing unless you want to be in opposition to me. This is serious. He says that in the New Testament as well as the Old. And we'll get to them. We'll come back to that quartet in other sermons. But today we begin in the nature of God. We start with the God. Uh, When justice is the topic, we start with the God who announced himself this way to Moses, that he is the one who reckons with the guilty, retribution, And all guilt is ultimately against him. All guilt is ultimately against him because we're the created in the story. But also he provides a way for the guilty to be reconciled to himself. So let's talk about this and we'll be done. First, biblical justice as God's retribution on the guilty. This is verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty... In other words, the guilty have to be punished somehow, some way. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses already recognized the guilt of the people. What did he say over in verse 9? We're a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked, hard-hearted is another description of the people of God that gets used. So the sin of the people is already being recognized in verse 9. Two chapters earlier, the golden calf. And so in verse 9, notice 
He says, uh, we're a stiff-necked people, verse 9, pardon our iniquity and our sin. Now that's two of the three words God used in verse 7. So looking at verse 7, verse 9, you've got iniquity and sin. And then verse 7, you've also got the word transgression. What's going on? We're covering the waterfront, sins of all shapes and sizes. Iniquity, verse 7, well, by uh, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, iniquity is, uh, uh, can also mean wickedness. Basically, iniquity is a general word for every kind of bad behavior. And then you've got transgression. Transgression can also mean rebellion. These words are in verse 7. Rebellion, transgression gets at willful violation. I know the right thing to do and I simply refuse to do it. I won't do it. And I'll do the opposite even. That's transgression, willfulness it conveys. And then sin, third word here God uses in verse 7, which Moses repeats back to him in verse 9. Sin means to miss the mark. It's very specific. And it includes, in missing the mark, it includes unintentional sin. So whereas transgression is willful, sin in this context is, I I didn't know that I was wrong, but God knows it. And so I am nonetheless guilty before him even for the things I don't recognize as sinful. Covering the waterfront, iniquities, transgressions, sins. God is saying, what's the point? God said to Moses, I don't overlook anything, nothing. The things you know about, I see too. The things you don't know about, I saw those too. I don't overlook anything. And the reason why, I've said this, I've said this in other sermons over the last couple of years, the reason why God doesn't overlook anything has to do with the story of the Bible. What is the fundamental story of the Bible? The story of the Bible is what God is doing about evil. We could say the end goal of the Bible is a world with no evil. And that world will come into being when the Lord is uh, reigning at his return, which we've also been talking about throughout this year. We've looked at Revelation earlier this year. We've looked at 1 Thessalonians, the last study we just did before this one. This is why the retribution of God exists. The retribution of God is not in service to his vendetta that he wants to rage and and vent and pay back the world. No, his retribution is actually in service to his healing and renewal of the world because the world needs to be held account to, to account for where it's wrong. There's no human flourishing if there's no accountability for human iniquities, transgressions, and sins. We know this. The reason we suffer, let's just be really basic. The reason we suffer is because we live in a fallen world of iniquities, transgressions, and sins. That's why people suffer. That's why bad things happen. Uh, God didn't make it this way. We did. And therefore, we all suffer in this fallen world uh, due to to the sinfulness of of humanity. And many suffer incredibly heinous wrong things against them. Wrongs that demonstrate a deep sickness in the world. Great wrongs are done every day. And if there is no rectifying of wrongs, that gnaws at us. That's not right. We know it. It, We have an instinctive sense of justice. We don't want to see the guilty get away with anything if they're guilty. And we know they're guilty. We don't want to see them get away with it. But who are the guilty? 
Who are the ones who are deserving of God's retribution? Is it primarily those responsible for the incredibly heinous wrongs? We immediately think of them. If we took a public survey, let's say we got a little clipboard and we went pre-COVID, post-COVID, where people gather, <laughs> and we, we engaged people with questions, and our, our survey was named for me the worst people you can think of. You know you're going to get the usual suspects. You're going to get Hitler, you're going to get Stalin, you're going to get ISIS, you're going to get dictators who are responsible for mass uh, genocidal, uh, mass cleansing of, of their uh, countries, their, their own people. Well, let's say we get the opportunity to rid the world of those who create that kind of suffering. Let's say for sake of argument that the worst people in the world, whom everybody agrees is, is bad, uh, that we get the opportunity to wipe them out, to do away with them. So, so all those evil people are gone. We'll start with the names I just gave. But there's a next tier out from them. So we got rid of all them. And then we've got serial killers and pedophiles and, and people like that. Well, they have to go too if we're ridding the world of everything that causes suffering. The worst people in the world who do the most damage we're going to have to get rid of if we're going to get rid of the world uh, of uh, suffering in the world. But then, in a world without those people, you've still got thieves, you've got swindlers, you've got drunk drivers, you've got adulterers, you've got anarchists, and they cause suffering too. So they all have to go in our quest to rid the world of human causes of suffering. So let's say that this is happening in our quest to rid the world of suffering. We successfully rid the world of all of the above. There's nobody in our jails anymore because the people guilty of the crimes and even the people who should be there, they're not, you know, they're all gone. We've, we've successfully, every bad actor, all the above, and eventually we get down to just us. Have we succeeded? Have we rid the world of the causes of suffering and evil? Well, to be honest, what about our own evil? If we're honest, any project to rid the world of evil, those who cause suffering, the guilty, as it's put in Exodus 34, eventually I am now my own worst person in the world. You get rid of all the tears above me as we grade on a curve, and you just are left with me and you, eventually we're the worst people in the world because I still cause suffering. I cause it in what I say. I cause it in what I think, much less what I do. I met, I, you say, well, you know, but terrorists are, are much, yeah, to scale. I may have never knocked down towers with airplanes as the 9-11 terrorists did, but I have... I have with my words torn down many, and that caused suffering. My point is, in a, world without all the, in a world with all the terrorists removed, I become the terrorist. I mean, eventually you get down to that level. So how much evil do you want God to remove? How much evil do you want him to deal with? It? All of it? Do you want him to grade on a curve? Do you want him to say, I think this guy's pretty good? Yeah, it's okay. The retribution of God that he doesn't overlook anyone or, any, or anything, even though I'm implicated in it, this is good. 
It's the way we actually want God to be when we think about it because the alternative is no one's actions mean squat. No one's actions mean anything. And that's no kind of world we want to be in. And it's not the world we're in. And, and just a word here about the way verse 7 ends. Where he says, uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. At face value, this reads like, well, if your grandmother cheated on her taxes, you, her granddaughter, are doomed to financial suffering. You know, that's, that's just, sorry, sister, that's just the way it is. Grandma cheated on taxes, and so now uh, granddaughter uh, is, uh, is going to suffer financial problems. That's not what this is saying. In fact, there's, there's other texts. You can go to Deuteronomy 24. You can go to uh, Jeremiah 32. You can go to Ezekiel 18, I think it is. And you can see passages where it says at one time uh, the children would come under the, uh, the punishment for the fathers, but now everybody's held responsible for their own sin. It's not exactly like an overturning. It's just more like dual realities. So what is going on here? What God is saying about the generations here is layered. One of the layers is straight logic. Parents' sin have consequences for their children. I think we all uh, can see that. In fact, we, we, we have a foster child. We've had her since April. She's now 19 months old. She's not responsible for being in foster care herself. She didn't do anything to... The fact that she was wandering around an apartment complex in Whitehaven by herself at 13 months is not something that she's responsible for. It's the sin of her family. It's that her family wasn't taking adequate enough care for her that she has to now become a ward of the state. That foster care is part of her story as she grows up is not her fault. It's her family sticking to her, if it were. So parents' sin has consequences for the children. We all get the logic of it. But another layer to this is that sin can run in families. And this is really the idea of generational sin. And generational sin is really the idea of, of systemic realities. I know systemic is one of those words we're not supposed to affirm as social conservatives, but the Bible affirms the systemic reality of sin. You can't get around that. I mean, you, you're, you just pick, I guess, but don't pick. Pick the Bible. Uh, generational sin is a complex reality. I'm not going to handle it at all in this text, but it, I know it causes a lot of people fear because if granddad and dad are alcoholics, does that mean junior is predetermined to be an alcoholic? And some people think that. I don't believe that. I don't believe generational sin is a predetermination. That's too close to programming and fate, which is more about karma. Uh, the good news of the gospel is that karma doesn't exist. We're people of grace. Grace because we're born into sin and because of that reality, we can pick up certain sin patterns from our family of origin and we can even be predisposed, not predetermined, but predisposed to expressions of our mutual fallenness that get, looks like others in our family of origin. Again, it's complex and our sin uh, is our own. If, if, even if granddad and dad before me sin the same way, it's still my own sin if I, if I do the same things. What God is saying here essentially is that no generation is sinless. It's essentially what it's getting at. Every generation faces his retribution for its sin until the world as we know it is no more. Your angel in the nursery is not a devil, but neither is she an angel. Right? In other words, 
she'll contribute her sin to the aggregate. Just give her time. But God is saying here essentially that he overlooks no one and nothing for generations. As long as there are people, he's still going to have sin to see. That's a hard word. That, that God doesn't at some point just go, you know what, I'm tired of, of holding sin over people. No. It's a hard word, but it's not the last word. Retribution from God is not the last word on biblical justice. As British uh, writer uh, puts it, Christianity is dead set. And the writer says, I, I, I'm intentional with my pun. Christianity is dead set on God being loving. And so retribution is not the last word. Reconciliation is given the last word. We transition out of that. God's love is in no competition with his justice. It's not like my justice provides retribution and my love provides reconciliation and you choose. All his attributes are working in the same interests. It's because God is love that he doesn't dismiss our moral choices. Because that would be bad for us. That would be apathetic. And that's the opposite of love. So his love is in no competition with his justice. His justice is in no competition with his love. But it's an extension. His love is an extension to those drowning in our iniquities and transgressions and sins and taking others down with us. And rather than face retribution, which we deserve, because again, in a world where all the terrorists could be removed, eventually I'm the terrorist. But God is dead set on conquering every evil that opposes him, even at infinite cost to himself, which is the death of his son for sinners. Rather than turn his retribution on me, he turned it on Jesus, who was no victim because of that. Don't think of poor Jesus being so badly treated by his father. No way. The father's justice is also the son's justice. The father's wrath is also the son's wrath. The father's retribution is also the son's retribution. The reconciliation, the father wanted, the son wanted wanted too. Enough not only to endure the physical pain of the cross, which was something, but the spiritual pain, which none of us can even begin to fathom what it was like for the son to to, to experience separation from his father, which had never happened. So that rebellious creatures, undeserving, could be restored to our creator, whose name is love, whose name is justice. The Father and the Son and the Spirit work together as one God for the reconciliation of those who merit retribution but get reconciliation in the grace and mercy and faithfulness and love and justice of God we wouldn't have a chance if we tried to stand before the tribunal of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, if we tried to stand in our own righteousness, our self-righteousness, we wouldn't have a chance. The Bible is very clear on this. We need a covering. And there's only one covering that works. And it's because Jesus got treated as if he was guilty of everything rotten so we could come out smelling like a rose. What is that? It's justice. It's justice when the guilty get off scot-free? Is that what you're saying? No. What about the wrong they did? God says, I see it, but I'll cover the wrong myself. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the joy of justice. 
the generosity of it. I'll cover the wrong myself. You are guilty, he says, to every human being. You are guilty. You're more guilty than you realize, in fact. Do you know how much he hates our self-righteousness and our unrighteousness? It isn't justice to let the guilty go free if their debt remains outstanding. That's a miscarriage of justice. But if their debt, if our debt gets covered, absorbed by the one we owe it to, it's then paid in full. And justice can be rendered in such a way that reconciliation is the result. I told you earlier that justice done results in joy. Justice in practice results, if not in our joy, then the joy of the one who does justly before we ever knew it was something we should do and who does it always above us anyway, the God of Exodus 34, whose name in the fullness of time is Jesus. Let's pray together. Stand with me. We'll sing be dismissed. Father, thank you for being everything you are without contradiction, that your attributes are not a mess as ours are. Thank you, Lord, that you bring order out of messes. You bring renewal out of chaos. You look upon us and you see our sin, but you also see your son. And for that reality, we thank you We thank you for your goodness to us, your graciousness to us, your justice on our behalf. And now, Lord, turn us to do justly, to be oriented toward what promotes human flourishing, to what provides for reconciliation, the gospel message and the gospel working out in love for neighbor. Lord, we pray that you will help us attend to what you're about in the world, that we won't miss that, that we just won't miss it which your church is always in danger of doing. We can live our whole lives doing and providing and being there for kids and and we can miss what you're about. Lord, don't let us squander the opportunity to get in on your joy and to be part of the beauty that you're doing in the world. Lord, help us to be clear and, and receptive to your spirit and responsive in worship to you, even as Moses so many centuries before us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.